Lord, we just come to you this morning and we want to humble ourselves and just admit that there's nothing we can do without you, Lord, that's going to value in anything. Lord, we ask you to come and be a part of our meeting. I pray for my brother that you would anoint him with your spirit. Lord, that you clear his mind, that you would um, just lead his thoughts and lead his tongue, that he may speak your words. Lord, we, we lift up the Rock family right now as they've lost Lynette. We pray that you would comfort them and be with them during this hard time and give them grace and peace to go through this trial. Lord, we also lift up Glenn and, Gre- Glenn and Greta as they travel. Uh, pray for safety. You Use them for your kingdom as they go to this funeral. Also pray, Lord, for David's daughter, Sarah. He's asked for pes- requests this morning, Lord, that you would help her to repent and return to her first love. Lord, we just ask you to work in that area and on her behalf. And Lord, we lift up Jeff, Bert's friend, as he's had this stroke. Lord, we ask you that you would use this to draw near to yourself. And Lord, um, that if it be possible, that you'd heal him. Lord, just work your grace in this situation. Also lift up the Zimmerman family and Lance. Lord, you know why this happened. We know that you're still on the throne and you're meaning this for their good. And so, Lord, help them to trust you in that. And Lord, I pray that if it be possible, that Lance would come out of this coma, that you'd bring healing. <clears throat> also, Lord, we pray for our brother Carl and Yvonne as they go to be servants. I pray you'd strengthen them and give them wisdom as they go to West Virginia. Help them to know the details and how everything should line up. I pray you'd just go with them and bless them. Thank you for the good work you're doing in Kuita's family, the two good things that you've done. But, Lord, we continue to lift them up, that you'd work in that family. And, Lord, we pray for grace to be on the Gussie family as they go and minister to Rod today. Thank you for their heart to do that. And I just pray your spirit would go with them and use them to work for your kingdom and for your glory. And once again, we just lift up Roger now. We just pray you'd bless him and use him mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Bless Thank you. All right. Well, good morning again. And... Welcome and thank you for that. Those prayer requests and that prayer, you know, if there's a reason we come together, if there's maybe many reasons we come together for fellowship and for praise and worship and preaching. But, you know, if there's anything that we dare not neglect, it's that one of prayer. That's a reason we come together and uh, we have a special time of prayer meeting on Wednesday night. But it seems like that's uh, that's one of God's. In fact, in the Bible study. It described the people who were part of the church. You could, you could have, you know, Luke could have written, these are the people who obey Jesus. These are the people who follow Jesus. But in that particular case, he said, these are the people who call on his name. And so that's a characteristic of a Christian, someone who calls on the name of Jesus. And uh, so it's a good thing that we can use to examine ourselves. Am I really a Christian? Do I call on his name? Do I call on his name regularly? Is that part of my everyday life to call on his name? As I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about what leading up messages we had. And I thought, you know, there was there. I think God has been preparing, you know, us in other ways for uh, 
the, the series of how things have come together. A few Sundays ago, I had a couple of sermons on how to love God more. It was going through the, 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 through the I have a needle book. And then Jeremy King had the message on authority. And then we listened to John D. Martin's message on culture. And then I think last Sunday we had Denny Keniston's message. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ and putting all that together. It, it just seemed like this was the time then to share what I would like to share. But once again, we've already prayed. I'd just like to bow our, head, bow our heads again. Just ask God to come and lead us, if you don't mind. So let's, let's pray. Father, we come again. And once again, I feel so dependent, so like I can't do this. And Lord, that's how it always is. Sometimes we just don't realize it. But without you, we can do nothing. And so I ask you for your anointing on my lips. And especially, Lord, I pray for an anointing on every set of ears here in this building that we would hear what you have for us. So, Lord, I thank you for gathering us here. You have blessed. You have guided. You have directed. You've been with us in the service already. And I thank you for that. Please come by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I was young, I heard a story. I heard something that was going on. I didn't know really what to make of it. I forget how old I was. I might have been 10. I might have been 15, somewhere in there. But a friend of our family, we had visited up there in Canada a number of times. Back then, the borders were a little more open than they are now. But we'd go back and forth, and we'd visit the different families. I had an uncle living up there, and uh, there was the, uh, a big family of, their, their last name was Torkelson. I think that's Scandinavian or something, but Torkelson. And uh, one of the men was a man named Howard. And Howard Torkelson had his family there. And we heard one day that he was going across the seas to India. And that was kind of a different thing. I mean, we'd heard of missionaries, you know, maybe going to Central America. And that was a big thing. But here's this man going to India, taking his family. They all packed up and went. And I, I don't have a lot of details here. I thought about calling him. He's back from India by now, been back a number of years, and he's actually on the phone team with me, so I couldn't have gotten a hold of him and asked him, hey, can I get more details about how all that happened? But um, I, I, I didn't do that. But I had a few details that back in my young age, it, I, didn't, I didn't wrestle a lot with the question why he went to India. It was just, well, must have been the church wanted him to go, so he went. But, you know, after he went, a typical term... Seemed like it was about two years and you'd think, well, maybe he's going to come back. But no, two years came and went and another two years and another two years. And I don't know if I have the detail right, but if my memory serves me correctly, he was there around 10 years in the country of India, serving the people, sharing the gospel as a missionary there. And so later I received some more information about that question, why he went to India. Several pieces as I started piecing these things together and it struck me. Wow, this is this is interesting. Why did he go to India? I, I heard more of what led up to that decision. That's quite a that's quite a it's quite a life changing decision when all of a sudden you pack up your family, young family and take them overseas and spend 10 years of your life in a country where you don't know the language, you don't know the people, you don't know anything about it. At least you didn't before this, this uh, decision was made, and um, 
I'd like to share some of those details with you. I'd like to share what I know. There's a lot of things I don't know. A lot of things maybe I'll find out in the weeks ahead if I, if I do make that phone call. But I'd like to share with you what I do know. And I probably will get a few details wrong, but that's okay. I'm going to fill in some of these details that, that make sense to me, as, uh, that, that I think probably happened or something like them. And we're going to see what we can learn from this about why Howard went to India. He, um, he grew up in what was called the fellowship movement. He, he was probably a small child, at least maybe a young man even, during the time that this happened. We also called it the non-conference movement. You see, they were part of his, his parents and their peers were part of a larger Mennonite church. They, they had these conferences around. I think they called them the conservative conferences, if I'm not mistaken. But there was a number of them. They had the Lancaster Conference. They had the Western and the, I don't know what all, how many there were, but there were a number of these. But these conferences hooked together church by church around the country were starting to make changes. There was a time they stood for certain things that they were no longer standing for. They were sliding toward the world in certain things in their, in, you know, in their materialism, in their sports emphasis, in the... You know, in their clothing, in their music, entertainment, and eventually their theology began to go toward worldly churches around them, just simply giving up inch by inch, foot by foot, the, all these things as they started marching toward the world in certain areas. And Howard's dad, along with a number of his peers, were concerned about this. They said, we don't want to go this direction. And they talked among themselves, what do we do? We have to... Uh, make a decision. Can we somehow use our influence to stop the churches from making these steps that they're making? And there was a number of these men that were concerned. One name, I, I don't know, I could have probably got a list of names. One of them that comes to my mind is Mervyn Bear. He was one I heard about up there in Canada. Another one is Paul Landis. He, he's the one who later started or helped to start Rod and Staff. You want to know about Rod and Staff? Talk to Joel back there. He could probably fill you in more about that ministry. But if I understand it right, Paul Landis was one who uh, helped start that publishing house. He was also one that was concerned about the drift of the church. Uh, Wilbur Krupp, some of you maybe went to his funeral here a couple of months ago. He was in that generation of these men who said, no, we're not going this direction. We're taking a stand. And eventually they pulled out and they started this church. And also then. Uh, there's there's this Ben Torkelson. Another one I think may have been involved was was uh, I think of this name Burton Troyer. I think he was up there in that uh, neck of the woods as well. And he's got he's got relatives in our area right now. But these were men who who, who said we're concerned and we're concerned enough to do something about it. Maybe there were other people who were concerned. Not concerned enough to actually step out and go a, a different direction. A few weeks ago, I was at a uh, no, it's been more than that. It's been, I don't know how many years ago now. I was at my uncle's funeral. And my, my, my uncle, he was one who stayed in the old church. And maybe he had some concerns that these other men had as well. But he stayed in that church that was heading toward the world. By the time he died, it seemed like he was pretty wrapped up in it. In fact, at his funeral, about all they could talk about was how much this man loved to farm. And he just talked about farming and he loved his tractors and so forth. And that was even on the obituary about how much he loved his farm. I think he was a lifelong member of that church um, that that uh, that he was part of. And it just struck me. Somebody made a one of my cousins made a comment after Wilbur's funeral 
Wilbur would sit in his tractor and prepare his sermons. He said, remember that our uncle's funeral? He would sit in church and think about tractors. Wilbur would sit in tractors and prepare for his sermon. Two different emphases on, uh, on, on life. And it showed. It showed in uh, you know, the direction they went and, and so forth. Well, Howard grew up in this environment. He watched his dad make these decisions. And I can only imagine how this went. When his dad comes home from one of their meetings, their brother's meetings, they're trying to decide what to do about the drift. And finally, they, they decide we need to pull out and start our own church. We just need to start our own fellowship. And he comes home, and makes an announcement to the family. We're, we're going a new direction. We've started our own church. And uh, we decided that one of the things that has to go is our television set. And so they walk into the living room and it's one of those, you know, back then you took two people to pick them up. You couldn't do it by yourself. And gets one of his boys to help him maybe and they load that thing onto the pickup truck and and uh, haul it to the dump you know and the way they were shaped back then you tip it over the edge and it would roll now the type they have they just slide they're like a sled but those would roll and you know they could have sold it at a garage sale they chose no we'll, we'll just get rid of it because we don't want this thing polluting other people's minds and of course people out the children I, I can only imagine the questions but dad you know what about our, our, our movie night? We're not going to be able to. No, we're not going to do that anymore. And that's disappointing. And, you know, what about this series we're listening to? You know, this this. Well, we decided we're not going to do movies anymore. So but but we're you know, we're to season two already and episode eight's coming up and we don't want to miss it. And, you know, children get disappointed about things like that. And this probably was hard. And Howard watched his dad uh, say, well, you know, yeah, there's some disappointments, but we're we're going to we're going to go a different direction. And and then they saw dad out the next day with a screwdriver up under the, you know, in the car and fiddling with something. What are you doing, dad? Well, I'm disconnecting the radio. We decided we're not going to have the radio either. Well, what are we going to listen to when we drive? That's a tough one, isn't it? Well, um, well, we'll listen to these newfangled things called cassette tapes. Either they were. And well, those haven't been invented yet, Dad. Well, they will be soon. And um, and they were. And so they did have something to listen to. And then their clothing patterns changed and they had these weird things called cape dresses and they had their their suit coats that they adopted. And, you know, maybe some larger head coverings. And, you know, it was it was a whole new direction. And Howard watched his dad make these changes for the family. And. Uh, it, it, you know, some a lot of people stuck with them, but there were some that came and left. You know, they said, hey, we, we'd like to be part of you, but I still need my TV or I need my radio or I need, you know, I need something. This is just too strict. And so they'd stick with them for a while and then they'd leave. And, uh, you know, sadly, many of those families didn't turn out very well. You know, there was train wreck after train wreck. And uh, some of them maybe stepped aside. Maybe they did. Maybe they did OK. You know, in biblical terms, it says made shipwreck. There were some of those or some of those sad events that they watched as people uh, took the, the, the route that they did. And so this was the environment that Howard grew up in. He watched a dad with courage, a dad with wisdom, a dad with foresight, knowing where these things would lead. And he admired those qualities as 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 uh, these decisions were made. And so now he is the beneficiary of that. And he's growing up and out of his childhood into his teenage years, out of his teenage years, into his early married years. And now he has his own family and he's he's benefiting 
from the stand that his dad and the men around him took and established and said, this is the direction that, that we're going. And it was a good life that they had as a result of some of those decisions. It was a stable life. It was they were receiving good godly teaching. And Howard, he, he was grateful for this. And uh, he was grateful for the, 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 the stand that they took. But maybe he asked himself the question, if I ever have to take a stand for Christ like my dad did, would I have the courage? He probably asked him that, himself that many times. Would I have the courage to do what my dad did? Now, of course, the next question is easy to come. Well, that won't be necessary because my dad made the sacrifices. I won't have to. But what if? Would I? Would I have the courage to do what my dad did and, 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 and take, that, uh, take that stand? But so this is the, the heritage that he had. And as he grew up, he was he was a beneficiary of this. It was a it was a, a, a uh, it was a good life that they were living up there in I think southern Alberta is is where he grew up. But you know as as time went on, now we're a generation past, maybe twenty years down the road. There were things he was maybe noticing that weren't quite what he wished they were. He noticed in his own generation the men seemed to be focused. Maybe their focus was a little too much on the materialism, their businesses, their what they were building and doing, the money they were making. He noticed maybe the women were, you know, they were pretty focused in on the canning and the cleaning and the housekeeping and the gardens. And the young people seems like, uh, you know, they were doing well. They're a stable group of young people. But it, at the same time, it seems like they're fairly focused in on, on, on play and volleyball and, you know, how do you make each volleyball game a little bit better than the one before. What, who can we, you know, kick off or bring on or better place to play or whatever that, that, you know, one game would be over. And instead of talking about the, you know, the outreach next day, it's talking about the next volleyball game a month from now. How do we make it just a little bit better? And that, that seemed to be the focus. It, but at the same time, he was still grateful. He was still grateful for what, uh, you know, the, 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 the stability that they had and uh, and uh, the good people that he had around him. And and so here it was in this situation that Howard was like a pile of maybe dry kindling in a stove in a in a fireplace just waiting for a match to come along and light it. And the match came. The 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 the, the the thing came that that changed Howard's life. And you could say it hit him like a cannonball. It, he was permanently changed after this thing happened. You say, well, what is the thing? Well, it was a sermon he was given, a written sermon, like a booklet sermon. And he sat down and he read that sermon. Maybe it was even preached to him, but I think it was written. And I think his first exposure was it was he, he read it. And this was a sermon that was written by one of the men in his father's generation, Paul Landis, not the Paul Landis that goes down there to the press and loads trucks. It's a different Paul Landis. He's get dead and gone now. But this man wrote a book, a little booklet, maybe you can call it more of a tract, called Who Then Is Willing? And this was handed to Howard. It was handed to everybody else in his church. It, was handed, it probably was handed out to everybody in his denomination now by this time. 
But as he sat down and read it, he, he, he felt God's call. I have to do something with what I'm reading. I can't stay the same. Ever, a lot of other people stay, you know, were around him and, well, yeah, good points. But they largely stayed the same. Howard, when he read it, it ended up sending him to India. I was given this book about 15 to 20 years ago. Of course, by then it had already been written 15 to 20 years prior to that when I myself received this little track or booklet. And I read it and said, wow, this is, this is quite... Uh, has quite a message to it. And I asked some other people, maybe even handed out a few copies of it. And then one of my older gener generation older than me said, oh, yeah, we've, we heard about that book. You know, we remember when that thing was written. Well, I didn't remember. I was just a child probably when it was written. But we remember when that was written. And you, did you know, by the way, I don't remember if it was my mom or my dad or one of my uncles or who it was. Did you know that that book is the reason Howard Torkelson went to India? Oh, no, I didn't know that. And that's the first I even knew anything about this little booklet. But all of a sudden, oh, this is making a little bit of sense. And suddenly I looked at that event, Howard going to India, and it wasn't just a far off thing that happened. Suddenly I realized there were some things going on in his heart that prompted him to pack up his family and, and go to India. Now it made sense, you know, why he was willing to walk into his living room like his dad had 20 years earlier and say, children, we're going to India. And, you know, all the objections that could come when that would when that happened, you know, dad, well, what about all the the, the volleyball games we're going to miss if we go to India for two years or longer? You know, what about all our cousins weddings? We can't attend those now. What's what's going to happen about that? And, you know, dad, I'm, I'm just about old enough to go work on the harvest crew next summer. And uh, you're saying we're going to India. But, yes, that was the decision. And he probably took their counsel. I don't know how all this went, but that's what happened. They went to India and for the next 10 years, that's where they were. And I'm just guessing if you'd ask any of those children now whether they regret, I'm guessing the answer is no, they don't regret that at all. But the question comes probably in your mind. What kind of a message was this that Howard listened to that impacted him so greatly that changed him to that point where he said, I have to do something with it. Even if the people around me aren't, what's it going to take? No, see, Howard wasn't the first person to go to India. That People have gone to India before. I don't know, back in the 1800s, there was a Baptist missionary that went to India. And uh, he, 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 can, he talked to people about the Lord Jesus. And one of the, men's, one of the men who got converted was, a, was an Indian man named Noxing. N-O-K-S-E-N-G. Noxing was, he decided he's going to follow Jesus and he shared the gospel with people around him and they started following Jesus and the village chief got angry. You can't do this. I'm losing my people. I'm losing control. He brings Noxing and his wife and the two little children to uh, the, the village square there and threaten them, says you're going to die if you don't renounce Christ and your whole family is going to die, too. And Noxing said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And they said, well, then your, your family's going to die. And they killed with arrows his two little boys. He said, now what are you going to do? He said, though no one joins me, still I will follow. And they killed his wife. Now what are you going to do? He said, uh, the world, the cross before me, the world behind me. And they killed him. All of them died as a, as a result. But that village chief, he was watching this whole thing. And, uh, you know, if you'd... 
pull up that song we sang right there in between, right before the sermon. I have decided to follow Jesus. It has an Indian name over there on the left where it has the name and it has an Indian tune on the right where it says the where it has the tune that was written by someone who witnessed this or talked to the chief because that chief, as he witnessed this whole thing, he became a Christian. He shared he shared this uh, this story and, you know, he told his the rest of his people after Noxing and his family were dead. He says, I'm going to become a Christian myself. And the whole village was converted as a result of that. So India has has situation. You know, people have gone to India before. The first man to go to India, I think, was in, in uh, as a missionary was at least historically uh, the way the way some historians presented is that it was Thomas, the uh, the, the apostle Thomas. Thomas was. Uh, he was after Jesus went back to heaven, even before the Holy Spirit came, before they had elected the replacement for Judas, Judas, 11 of these disciples got together and drew lots. Jesus said, go through the whole world. Where are we going to go? So, you know, you only have so many directions on the map, but they pulled lots and said, here's where we're going. And, and Thomas drew India. And he said, no. Remember, he he had a problem with doubting. He says, I can't do that. I'm a Hebrew. I can't. How am I ever going to witness to these Indian people? But that night, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. He says, you go, I'll give you grace. And uh, Thomas still had struggles. How's this going to work? I don't even know how to start. Well, a man came. Then he heard right there in Jerusalem was a man who wanted, who was, who was visiting from India. It was a king over in some Indian tribe that was wanting somebody to come and build him a palace. It's a carpenter from Jerusalem. And so Thomas finally decided that's my way to go. He went with him. And uh, while he was there in India, God's anointing did come on him. He shared the gospel with many people. Many people became Christians. And once again, it became a threat to the village chiefs. And they ended up killing Thomas. And uh, he died and went to be with his savior. But so India is it has a history of these Missionaries going. So back to to Howard, you know, they, he was he was there and, and or he was getting ready to go. He was thinking about going. He was felt the call to go. And uh, the, the, the question is, what was it that was written? What was it in this little sermon that he read? What was it in this booklet that he read that got his attention? And and I actually received it. Like I said, I received a copy years ago and I went back to my computer, tried to find it. And I did. I found this 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 booklet. Here's part two put together in a booklet like that. And we we're, we're not going to read that. We don't have time. But this is part one. Who then is willing? I'd just, I'd just like to share with you what was in this message that was so life changing. And remember, other people read it. Howard wasn't the only one that read this. Many other people read it and didn't go to India. Now, I don't want to say it didn't change their lives. It very well may have. It probably did. Probably changed a lot of people's life because there's more than one way to change your life. Sometimes you're going somewhere. Sometimes you're changing something in your personal life. And I trust that God used it. But I'd like you to hear this message. Who then is willing by Paul Landis? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them, teaching them. God is being very good to the church in our countries in North America. The only real hardship financially is that which we bring on ourselves by insisting on a plush standard of living. These blessings will lead our heart. Will lead our heart's affections away from God if we use or hoard them for ourselves. In our return to consistent Bible practice, we have not yet recaptured the vision of the lost world around us and the responsibility of our Lord Jesus, the head of the church, placed upon us to spend and be spent evangelizing the lost throughout the whole world until he comes. Now, 
remember, this is 20 years after Paul Landis and the people around him had pulled out of the apostate, the, 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 the going to the world church. Call them the apostate churches, call them the worldly churches. Maybe that sounds judgmental. I don't know what else to say, but that's what was happening. And, but he's saying now, 20 years later, a generation down the road, we made some right decisions. But something feels wrong. And Paul Landis was called, he was, he was calling to repentance the people around him. He was saying something isn't quite right. And Howard's listening to this. He's reading this and thinking, what am I going to do with this message? Paul says, we are producing churches of people who are basically faithful to the ordinances and commandments of God as pertains to standard of holy, pious living. But we've failed miserably to lead our people into forsaking of all so the Lord can work through us to evangelize this generation. We're not able because we're not available. We have too many strings attached to financial institutions, farms, businesses, and so forth. Of material consequence only are all is not in Jesus Christ alone in that respect. Too many become heartbroken and turn away sorrowful as did the rich young ruler because they have great possessions. They have many heirlooms to hover over as a hen does her brood. Their love is greater by far for the old home place and mother's old dishes, quilts and furniture and for father's farmland than for souls of neighbors all around them. Young men and women who first learn to make money, heal in financially and secure their future as soon as they are, are, are soon in their 30s and 40s. And they, monies and services, are locked in for life. They are not available for the Lord's work except on a very marginal basis. They acquired a wrong sense of values from the beginning. Their vision of the needs all around them is very dim. It's high time that our young men and women learn to do some things other than earn money. Nor should we think that they take the first 20 or 30 years of the mature years to, produce, to prove their ability to make financial success. Multitudes around us will have perished in the fires of hell by that time. Unless our young men get a primary vision of the nurturing of the church and the gathering it of lost souls, the seeds of apostasy are already well established in our churches. Millions of dollars lie in waste among us because of a false concept or a false god that we call good stewardship. As did the man with one talent, we are hiding it lest it will be wasted. God would have us use it to reach souls, not put into material usury, but spiritual usury. The scriptural injunction to forsake all and follow Jesus is very vague among us. Forsake all? Certainly not financial security or the finances God has blessed me with to date. The question is primarily who is willing, not who is financially able. To require a backing of comfortable investment at home, in the bank, or in the property, or, or in property to fall back on and take care of us in our old age to qualify us for the Lord's work is to render us unable to live and work a work of faith in God's kingdom today. Which of the apostles or prophets had such an arrangement? Peter and the others led about a wife who needed food and shelter. Jesus had not where to lay his head. Who then is willing, faithful, then able? God will enable the vessel that's available and pliable with no reservations. As a people, we're full of reservations. We're not available. We have to make money, heal materially, build up our own little kingdom, and some are not so little, to make our mark in the world. We teach simplicity and live simply grand. Most men whom God has blessed with the gift to make large amounts of money are not willing to throw away, quote unquote, their money by supporting some humble, faithful worker in the vineyard. They quote, have to be good stewards to invest their money in some project that will remain in the sight of men so they can get the satisfaction of looking at it from afar, knowing that others are also seeing it and giving praise to the investors of the same. 
But to have their money support mission workers or produce literature that will be distributed and gone, never again to be seen as a monument of status and stewardship, is considered wasteful and lacking qualities of, quote, good stewardship. We are so soaked through with the false economy of our age that God's, quote, follow me cannot even speak to us. We cannot hear him. Our ears are full, are very dull of hearing. Our affections are set on this world's goods, not on things above. The case with which we can borrow money has captured many of our people. The result is that most of us find ourselves in the first 20 or more years of married life strapped to obligations that we planned shall make us financially secure by middle age or before. Many, by the age of 40 or 50, could sell out their holdings and support themselves for a number of years in a foreign mission work, but they have not been conditioned for it in their 20 or 30 years of financial drive for success and security. Through this material program, they have thoroughly imbibed a worldly sense of values which unfits them for the work of the church, which is a work of faith, both financially and spiritually. These 20 or more years of material drive have serious effect on the spiritual life. Instead of training people to more and more trust God for all in life and fulfill his will to lean on and to lean more and more on him for guidance in all things of life, it trains men to believe they must figure things out for themselves, that the Lord has nothing to do with their decisions and material things, and that a life of faith is fine for the mission workers. It fits them not to work the work of the church and missions by faith and the scriptures, but by the worldly material philosophies by which they have succeeded in the material pursuits. They do not see how anything could, could succeed otherwise. If we're not learning through our daily responsibilities which are both home duties and pursuit of our financial obligations, to live a life of faith and trust in God, we are not building the true church. We're a spiritual liability to it. We're not providing a sound spiritual heritage for our children. We're not preparing to be effective witnesses for Christ. The compassion for the loss that hums and drives is little known among us. Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And the lost perish around us daily, not because they're gospel hardened, but because we're tied to the things of the world, our hearts cold and faithless, without burning compassion for these souls who are going to be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Perhaps in reality, the reason none of our members sell all that they have and give to the church and the poor and follow Jesus to be fishers of men is that the church provides neither call nor direction for such. Members would rather feel threatened with disfavor of the church being labeled radical or extreme or unfaithful for not laying up in store for old age treasures on earth. They cry, the cry will immediately go up. Suppose we all did that. Someone must stay home and support those who go. The answer is obvious and simple. That's not what most of us are using our money for. We're using it for ourselves. Our neighbors will readily and truthfully testify to that. Our vision is a better life for ourselves and our children and secure old age. We're without excuse, perhaps more than any generation since the time of Christ. Opportunities for good income to conscientious workers abound in most of our communities. Good income combined with simple living and a life of faith equals large church coffers full of mission funds. Give as the Lord hath prospered thee, ready to distribute. Numerous fields throughout the world are white or ready to harvest. Germany, Paraguay, Guatemala, Belize, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, the Philippine Islands, the Northwest, Switzerland, India. All are calling for sound gospel witness. We are sure there are many other people in other areas who are longing and reaching out for the truth. Satan has lied to us with many lies. The serious part about these lies is we believe them. He says our children are to be pitied if they have to be on the mission field, robbed of fellowship of the young people and their activities. The truth of the matter is that on the mission field, with its needs and demands, they will learn true values of life and many other valuable lessons that they cannot learn in plush settings. 
Truly pity the children that must grow up without the opportunities to learn them. They can be learned in the home church if parents live by true values. To believe them is to live them. But is it not true that few do? Another lie of Satan is that we must stay home to make money so that we can support those who go, as was mentioned above. This seemingly is wise reasoning. But is this what is happening? I fear not. Observation would tell us that the basic support that keeps the mission work going is the burden in the hearts of the poorer among us. And others look down on them, saying it's too bad they don't know how to manage better. If we do not follow Jesus to become fishers of men, we'll fossilize into liberalism, which is Sadduceeism, or ultra-conservatism and traditionalism, which is Phariseeism, or politicalism, which is Herodianism. This has happened to all other groups gone before us. To have the primary emphasis on being good stewards of material things will result in a program of humanism helping people to a better physical life, comfort, and security. To be good stewards in this area is important, but certainly secondary, not primary. But to be good stewards of the grace of God is of utmost importance, first at home and then in all the world. The evidence of a gradual but certain increase of affluence in living standards among our churches indicates a definite step in the direction of apostasy, a shift from dependence on God to dependence on things. If this were not true, the money God blesses us with would be used for God's work, not finer things or items of pleasure. Children who grow up in such soft circumstances will have little comprehension of the realities of life. Theirs is an artificial understanding of what life consists of and how to cope with it properly. All too soon, they themselves will become a mission field. Satan says material prosperity indicates spirituality. There is no New Testament scripture that teaches this. Many New Testament scriptures do teach us, however, that we use material things God has blessed us for, for ourselves or to give them to the poor in the church, does tell the true condition of our heart. He lists a bunch of them, Mark 12, Luke 12, 1 Timothy 6, Mark 10, Luke 6, James 5, and so forth. James also, or Satan, sorry, Satan also causes many to believe that the money they have is their own because they say, I worked hard for it. I must not waste it by giving it to the church or to be used where I cannot control it. The deacon or the school board or the mission board or the workers or so forth, they don't have the best judgment on the use of money. God says he's the one who gives power to gain wealth. When he gives to us, it's still his. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. He's entrusting it to us to use for his purposes, not our own. We will someday answer as stewards to give account of all that we did with 100% of what he has entrusted to our care, not just the 10%. In the home, school, and church, we're training our members to be hard workers, good businessmen, farmers, good financiers, thrifty, diligent in labor, and efficient in putting material things to good use. God is blessing and multiplying the fruit of our labors. If we lavish these blessings on ourselves and on our children, they will eat away our faith as cancer does the body. If we will work to be rich, it will drown our souls in destruction, 1 Timothy 6, and pierce us through with many sorrows. If we lay up treasures on earth, there will be hearts. There will our hearts be with our affections. When will we believe these and many other such like scriptures and heed the warnings? When will we seek and practice sound applications to them? The cancer has already set in. This is easy to be observed across the spectrum of the conservative churches. Effeminate living, soft, gorgeous, delicate, plush, costly, is steadily on the increase. You've lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You've nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. James 5. Does this not describe many of our people? Pleasure, not on the public ball field or before the TV, but in finery, status building, image buildings and equipment. These provide much central gratification and gradually destroy simple faith. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for ye know not what time 
not when you know not when the time is for the son of man is as a man taken a far journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh he at even at midnight or at the cock growing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all watch Mark chapter 13, 20, 32 to 20, uh, 37. Read also, also Matthew 25, talking about the talents. This lesson is pertaining to the spiritual talents and the opportunities and responsibilities, not material, although it does offer guidelines for the material. Read Matthew 24, a similar warning. When Christians in former years in any setting settled down into material complacency, feeling God was surely pleased with them because of the way he blessed them materially, they experienced spiritual decline and apostasy. We will be no exception. We may be orthodox for a number of years, but also apostate. Our fellowship will be traditional and former, formal rather than spiritually satisfying and fruitful. We will be satisfied to bring most of our children into a traditional shelter. The vision and power to bring the world to Christ and be part of his church will be gone. The Lord of the church is calling on the shepherds of the flock to lead out both in precept and example. Who then is willing? Will we allow Satan through the wrong use of material blessings rob us and our people of true faith in God? The evidence at present seems to say we will. The challenge we face is that we must very soon lead our people to the vision of the vision of the perishing world to lay all on the altar in a meaningful way to be available to be used as Christ and the church will call. We as leaders must gain the vision of our responsibility to provide call and guidance to the sheep in our care and sell all that they have, give to the poor and to the church and be vessels in God's hands to evangelize the world. At this point, most of our people are conditioned to respond to the call to discipleship. Before many years, before many years, many of them will no longer be. They will have been spoiled by the central enjoyment of their material blessings. The call is to heed the scriptures, not the traditions of the past 200 years. The apostles and the early Anabaptists found a good application of these teachings in their time. We can and must, too, if we're willing and determined. God will enable us. Who then is willing? Galatians 6 says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So that's what Howard read. And you've already heard how he responded. There are some times when response is not voluntary. You get a call. And it's something that absolutely cannot be changed. Howard was in a position he could choose what to do with what he read. Sometimes we can't choose. And God sometimes in his mercy brings those things. You get a call from the cancer doctor. Sir, I have bad news for you about your wife. You get a call from the banker. We haven't been able to renew your loan. It looks like you're going to lose your farm. Maybe you get a call from a child. I don't want to serve God the way you're serving anymore. I'm going to leave home. And these things are involuntary. And we have to respond appropriately when it happens. Howard was reading this and he didn't have to respond to what he just read. He, he could have ignored it. He could have done something different than he did. To be honest, I don't even know how I'm going to respond to this article that I just read. I'd read it years ago, read it again this week. 
But is God calling me to do something different? What are the options? What what does it mean? What, what you know, has God laid anything in your heart? Is there something that in your life is going to change? You know, maybe maybe they're not as big as going to India for 10 years. Maybe they are. Maybe that is what it's meaning. But maybe there's other things. Maybe it means calling your boss and saying, hey, I'd like to work an extra hour of overtime each day so I have more to give to missions. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's calling your boss and saying, I've been working too much overtime. I'd like to cut back a little bit so I have an extra hour to pray every day. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's your Bible reading, your memorization, the commitments that you're going to change. Maybe it has something to do with your giving. Maybe after you make the changes that God's calling you to make, your checkbook's going to turn around and look at you and says, I don't think I know you. You're a different person than you used to be, the way you're treating me. Snakes can talk and donkeys can talk. I don't know if checkbooks can talk or not, but maybe. Maybe there's something else. Maybe there's neighbors to talk to about the Lord. Maybe there's mission trips that need to be planned instead of some other trips that you were planning. Um, I don't know what all that's called, what all God is calling you to. I want you to think about that. I want you to remember the example of Howard. But maybe there was other people around him that could say, you know what? The same time Howard was making his choices, I also made some very serious choices during that time. I I have to believe I, I fear it's true that there were people around him who made no choices. I'm afraid that's really what happened. But I, I bet there was also a lot of people who read what he read and said, I'm going I'm to make some choices. I am going to live differently. I'm not going to India like Howard, but I'm going to stay home and make it so that Howard can go to India, whatever that took. Um, so I'll leave that between you and God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us. It would be your voice that we would not think that we're all doing the same thing, Lord, but that we all do need to lay all on the altar and that we cannot be your disciple unless we give up all that we have, according to your son, Jesus. Teach us what that means. Show us, Lord, step by step how to be a true disciple. To hear your call, come follow me. To build your kingdom and seek that first and nothing else. To lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Lord, show us what that means. We need you to guide us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.